Thank you for being here and welcome to Lindsley Avenue Church of Christ. Good to see everybody again. And I personally am again very grateful for the opportunity to share some thoughts with all of us here this morning. The topic today is joy, specifically from John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding. It came to me several weeks ago as we were preparing for a wedding in our extended family. And the one inaccuracy here is there were no cold rings that were exchanged back in the first century. But I tried to think, what can I put that's a symbol to us today of weddings? And I think gold rings uh, certainly are it. So let's talk about joy and look in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, for ways that we can decide, decide the choice to have joy in our lives, more joy in our lives. So picking up in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. Strangely enough, it was to me, Jewish law required weddings to be held on Wednesdays. This is the Jewish scribal law. The rabbis had decided that weddings need to be held, need to be held on Wednesdays. Counting backward, if you go back to the end of John chapter 1, that means that it was on the Sabbath day that Andrew and John first met Jesus and stayed with him all day at the end of that previous chapter. But we're on a Wednesday when this wedding is occurring. Just as now, uh, weddings were big occasions. It'd be interesting to see which were bigger back then or today. Uh, the ceremony took place late in the evening after a feast. After a feast. It's funny. We had a ceremony and then perhaps sometimes have a feast after the ceremony. They did it the other way. The couple, the bride and groom, were conducted through the town, through the streets of the town to their new home by the longest possible route so that people could with their friends and they could be accompanied. Uh, they were taken using that long a path as possible so everybody in the town could express their congratulations and tell them how happy they were for them. That probably is a little different today. If you've been to some weddings, the bride and groom were desperate perhaps to get out of there and get away from all the crowd, start that new life together, head to the honeymoon, or, or just finally be done with the long, fancy ceremony. But here, in the first century, weddings were, in fact, quite different. Uh, the couple did not leave to go on a honeymoon. They didn't do that kind of thing back then. They stayed at home for a week. For a week after their wedding, they kept open house. Open house. They wore crowns and robes as they were going about in their house, and they were even addressed as the king and queen. Uh, in life, in the life back then where there was often poverty and hard work for most of the lifetime of people. Uh, this week of festivity, happiness, and joy was one of the happiest times, many times, in the life of this couple. So what a wonderful way to start a couple on their journey in life together by having this week-long uh, celebration. Now, why do we have ceremonies uh, when we have these public ceremonies? When you think about it, there's usually you know, two or three of these types of ceremonies that we see very often. You'll see a graduation ceremony, you'll see a wedding ceremony, and then not so much from a happiness standpoint, but certainly a ceremony as a funeral, where it's a formal occasion that lots of people get together. And when you look at that, I'm really convinced that's because those are big changes 
and either the lives of people involved in the ceremonies or the lives of people outside of it. So we get together in those situations of a graduation, a wedding, or a funeral, it helps us deal with change. It helps us deal with change. From a wedding perspective, right, this, this boy and this girl had been on their own and now they are to be one. Big change, big change. Man leaving father and mother and cleaving to his wife, big change. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a way of helping us cope and deal with such pretty massive change. Here in the first century, this kind of ceremony and extended week-long festivity would help a lot with managing uh, the, the change that would come. So let's pick back up with John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. It would appear, as we're going to see, that Mary was in some sort of position of responsibility at the wedding. Perhaps if they had had such a thing back there, the, the wedding director, wedding planner, uh, if you've seen uh, any movies recently that are on Hallmark channels and all that stuff, it seems like everybody's in the wedding planning business because that's what most of those movies are all about. Pearl, I know, is a big fan of those. Uh, but it might have been potentially the wedding of a relative. That would be the way that Mary might have been involved in it. Maybe it's somebody that is related to Mary. That could explain as well the presence of Jesus and his disciples. Well, an early 2nd century writing, not in the Bible, an early 2nd century writing suggested that the wedding was actually Mary's sister's child. She was the aunt of either the bride or groom. And if that were true, no way to ever know if it were, if it was true, but if that were true, that would explain why Mary is there, right? The, the boy or the girl involved in the wedding, she's the aunt, and it would be easier for her to make sure everything's in place than for the mother of the bride or the mother of the groom to be worrying about that. Uh, a different early writing, a little later, actually suggests that it was John himself's wedding, that John was in fact the groom of the wedding, and that uh, he was the nephew of Mary. There's some circumstantial evidence to suggest that Jesus and his apostle John were in fact related. That's not really relevant to what we're talking about this morning, but for some reason or other, Mary's there. She certainly seems to be in a position of responsibility. She certainly seems to be about many of the things in charge. So when you look at this, we, we continue reading John 2. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they had ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now regarding the wine, it really is what you think it is. That's about all I'll leave with that. It really is what you think it is. Uh, the Bible in the first century world looked upon drunkenness with disgust. God said it's sinful, and the Roman and Greek world, pagan as it was, looked upon people who drank too much as barbarians, uncivilized, people to really be shunned. Only people who were not in control of themselves at all would ever allow themselves to drink too much. So the larger point here, though, is not so much the wine or lack of it. It's the one of hospitality. Hospitality. Uh, that doesn't really seem to affect us as much today. I mean, we try to be nice to people. But hospitality is the whole idea of love of strangers. Love of strangers. Showing kindness to people who are not in your family. Hospitality. It was considered by the pagans, 
in society, the people who are not Jewish or Christian, as a sacred duty. And we are told over and over again in the New Testament to show hospitality. You have to be a lover of hospitality. You have to be one that's looking for opportunities to be nice to others. Well, here, they have run out of wine, and the problem is this is a very grave social offense. Uh, to run out of provisions if something as joyous at a wedding would have been a tremendous humiliation to the bride and groom in that environment. I mean, suppose you went to a wedding reception of some sort, and they ended up having one fork. Okay, I mean, they have no forks. I mean, you know, how, how are people going to eat a cake or, you know, see what I mean? Or they have one cup, right, for a little punch, whatever that is. I mean, it, it's, it's half crazy to think of that. But problems happen. And as, as odd as that would be today, it would have been just horrible to have that happen in the first century. A tremendous humiliation to this couple, the most joyous to start, the most joyous week of their lives. So Mary comes to Jesus with an urgency saying, they have no wine, they've run out of wine. Not the best way to start off that uh, new life together. Certainly seems Mary's involved in overseeing things. Why is she find out, apparently first, that they're out of wine here? When there's a problem, here's an important question. Who did she go to? She went to Jesus. And it's a problem that we might look at and think it's a pretty small problem. They've run out of wine, they're still married. You know, this kind of stuff. But when she had something that was a problem, who did she go to? Jesus. It would be good if we did that more often. When I have a problem, who do I go to? Do I go rude about it? Do I become quiet? Do I get withdrawn? Do I go off mad about the problem? When you have a problem, who do you go to? I'd like to challenge each of us to do better at taking our problems to God. When I have a problem, instead of the last thing I think about, pray about it. Let's make sure that it is much, much more often the first thing that I think about. Mary went to Jesus. I can't walk over to Jesus and say, I've got this problem. But any place we are, any time we are, we can always speak to Jesus God through prayer. So let's learn from what Mary did just by going to Jesus. Let's take our problems to Jesus. When they had read out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to, to him, to Jesus, they had no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Let me suggest that young teenage boys, particularly, are often tempted to respond this way to their mothers, usually just once. And unfortunately, I will confess, I, I know that from my own past. Okay? You see it in the Bible, and so your mother tells you to do something, a smart aleck teenage boy, again, I, I'm very familiar with this, who's 13, 14, or 15, might say, hey, pick up this, do this, do this. Woman, what have I to do with thee? You say that once, especially if the father hears you. It was always worse for the father to hear you smart mom that's your mother, than anything your mother could possibly do to you. Now, what is Jesus doing here? It sounds very discourteous, it sounds very disrespectful, but that's a difference in language and culture across 2,000 years. 
It's a poor job of translation, especially with the King James. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Uh, that's not a very well translated response to what Jesus is really saying and doing to his mother here. So what is he trying to say here? The phrase, what have I to do with thee, would have uttered complete disagreement if uttered sharply, but if uttered softly, it would have indicated misunderstanding. Mom, you just you don't understand. It's not time yet. Total difference with that kind of meaning than, woman, what have I to do with thee? You know, that kind of thing or something. Like that. In effect, it means, don't worry. You don't quite know what's going on yet, but leave things to me. They'll be settled in their own way. That's a bit wordy to go into a translation, but that's the response Jesus is giving his mother. There is no disrespect. You can kind of tell that by Mary's response to the very next thing she says. Take a look. Mary said to the servants, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So she wouldn't have responded that way. I really don't expect if he had not said that previous statement softly. If it had been a tone of disrespect, again, remember, this is Jesus, the one without sin, it would have been sinful to respond to your mother the way it sounds. So, inconsistent. That's off the table, right? It's also off the table because Mary doesn't get, how dare you speak to me that way, boy, or whatever. I don't know how they would have said that in the first century. But her response says, whatever he says to you, do it, when she speaks to the servants. Note the confidence Mary has in her son. They have no wine. I brought that to your attention. You've responded to me that, Mom, you really don't understand yet, but, but I'll, I'll do what needs to be done. Immediately, she just turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you, you do it. There's another point to learn right there. Even if we don't understand why we're in circumstances we're in, if we don't understand where this problem came from, if we don't understand why is this happening to me, if you take it to Jesus, he's going to fix it. It may not be exactly the way we expect it to be fixed. This is probably what he's going to do. It's probably not what Mary was really expecting, but the confidence was in whatever he does is going to fix it. When I take my problems to Jesus, that he's going to fix it if I'm patient and look for the solution. Picking up again in John 2, now there were sets, there are six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. That is a lot of water. I mean, if it's 20 gallons, that's 120 gallons of water. What is that, 120 milk jugs? I mean, how much room would 120 milk jugs take? I mean, the big jugs are a gallon. That's a lot of water. Since John is writing primarily for a Greek audience, not a Jewish audience, he explains what this is all about. Water would have been required for two purposes. First, the cleansing of the feet upon entering the house. When you came into the house wearing sandals, I mean, they didn't have Adidas or Nike or whatever the fancy shoes are today. They had sandals, and it was considered a matter of courtesy and welcoming and hospitality to have the feet washed, to get rid of the dust and dirt, to get rid of other undesirable things that would have been in the street that would have collected on the feet. Feet were washed. When you're throwing a wedding, lots of people are going to be coming. You need water so that you can dip out water 
and help wash the feet. The feet were not being put into the giant water jugs. Okay, that's not what's going on here. Water dipped out to wash the feet. So that's very important. Second, hand washing. Hand washing. The Jewish people washed their hands, not so much in, in this time to actually clean them from dirt, but to express a form of being ritually pure to approach God and ceremonies that God would have had them attend, wedding ceremonies. And the way they washed them, they did it two ways. They would first wash with the hands held up and let the water and the dirt, whatever, kind of roll down the hands. And then they would wash them with the hands held down so that the dirt would, in fact, flow off. So when people came to the house, if you had gone to this wedding, water from these water pots would have been used to be poured on your feet to help wash and clean your feet as a sign of welcome, as a sign of hospitality being expressed. And then, before the meals, you would have had your hands washed, water poured over them, the two ways, that's what the water was being used for. But there's a whole lot of water still here. What's the problem? They have no water, which is the problem Mary brought to As I say, that's a lot of water up to perhaps 180 gallons, 120, 180 gallons of water. That is way too much water for the purposes they were using for. And when Jesus is going to turn this into wine, that is way too much wine to be drunk at a wedding. Remember, the culture frowned immensely upon any kind of drunkenness, overindulgence in any of this. And 120 milk jugs full of wine? There's no way all of that was aimed at the wedding feast. So what is he doing? Jesus does something, it is always more than a minimum. Suppose Jesus, in fact, in the wedding party really just needed, I don't know, two gallons of wine. Pick some number. He doesn't just give enough so that they can finish the feast and be done with it. He goes, boom, in a sense. Think about it. When he feeds the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish, everybody has their fill and they pick up 12 full baskets of leftovers extras were taken up. When there's fish in the net and he tells them to cast your net on the other side and they pull it up, the net is breaking with the strain of so many fish. When Jesus does something, he doesn't just seek to do what's the least I have to do to fix the problem or to get this taken care of. He does it above and beyond. What's the point of that? God has more than enough blessings make my life happy the way it ought to be. When I have a problem, God has more than enough solution to my problem. When I have a problem, when you have a problem, if we take it to Jesus, if we take it to God, the solution that will come is going to more than solve your problem. If we go to Jesus with it. Mary goes to Jesus, Jesus sees all this water, boom, they have all this water. They have all this wine and they start to do Another point, we always need to do more than the minimum, too. Suppose we're around somebody that needs some help. You know, I tell you what, this cracker that I have, this little cracker will get rid of your hunger for the next 32 seconds. And in that 32 seconds, I can be walking and I'll be long gone and you'll be forgotten. You see the point? Instead of thinking, what's the least I can do to help? How about we go above and beyond all the time? 
look for ways to help like Jesus helped. Remember the loaves and the fish. Remember the fish in the net. Remember the wine at the wedding. It is always, as, as the, I've heard the younger people say, you know, food, right? Above and beyond what's required. Jesus said to them, to the servants, fill the water pots with uh, water. Fill them up. Make sure they're all filled up, right? And they filled them up to the brim. I think that's important. He then said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. The servants were doing exactly what Mary had asked them to do. They were doing whatever Jesus had said. The pots were filled up to the top. Nothing else was put in them. All water. They didn't have some secret instant wine powder. Right? You think of a water bottle and you put the, the Hawaiian punch powder in it or something. Boy, you spill that on you. It's all, it might as well just dye the shirt red because it won't come out. There wasn't anything else put in here. This was simply water. It was filled up to the top. Filled up to the top. The master of the feast that's mentioned is the equivalent today to the head waiter. The head waiter. The person responsible for keeping the food and the drink coming. It's a different kind of responsibility than Mary may have had if she were the wedding director, the wedding planner. This is whoever is set up for this feast they need more, you know, chicken legs over on the third table, that kind of thing. He's the one that would have noticed the wine was missing. He went to the wedding planner and said, hey, you've run out of wine. Mary goes to Jesus. Jesus has the servants take the wine that has now been transformed from water to the master of the feast. Jesus doesn't take it. He has the servants take it to the master of the feast. Look what he says. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He called the groom. Why did he call the groom? Well, in the first century, at the wedding feast, it was the groom's parents who were responsible for it. That's kind of backward today. Usually today at a wedding, it seems the the groom's uh, responsible, if I remember it correctly, for the rehearsal dinner or something like that, if there is one, and the bride's parents are responsible for the wedding itself. Apparently, the, bride, the groom's parents were just going to be so happy to get this boy gone. Some woman has finally said yes to this boy. We'll pay for anything. I'm kidding. Uh, it was just the culture. There's no real rhyme or reason why one pays for the other. The groom's parents are paying for it, so he calls the groom to talk about this wine he had been brought by the servants after having run out of wine. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to them, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. You've, you've, you've messed it up. The guests have been here, they've been eating, they've been celebrating and now you bring out this stuff? You know, I don't know anything about wine, but maybe it's, this was the kind of stuff that would have had the fancy-dancy label on it. The best wine that ever existed on the planet must have been right here, because Jesus came. And the master of the feast says, boy, you should have had this out first, because nobody brings out the fabulous stuff here at the end of it. He's essentially teasing the bridegroom, like, where did you get this stuff? Why didn't I know about this? I would have had this stuff out here when the feast began a couple of hours ago. That's what he's meaning by this remark. 
Make your first impression a good one. That's the point of bringing out all the good stuff at the start of the feast. Make your first impression a good one. The beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. By turning water into wine, his disciples knew that this is going to be an incredible journey. The first thing he did was change this water to wine at the wedding at the request of his mother that they have no wine. After this, he went down to Capernaum, a neighboring town not too far away up in Galilee. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Jesus did not stay very long with his family after this. In many, many ways, he had a new family of disciples and a new work there to go. So let's talk about this for a minute. The beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Thoughts on the event? Let's think about two things about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Instinctively, she turned to Jesus when something was wrong. An old, old story says that when people had trouble, when they were worried about something, when they were upset in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, they would say, let's go look at Mary's child. Let's go look at Jesus. And their troubles would slip away. I suspect that never happened, but the thought is a fabulous thought. When I have troubles, when I have something bothering me, instead of focusing on my situation, my problem, my trouble, how I will never be able to fix this problem, I think things will be a whole lot better if we put our focus on Jesus. We talk to God and we pray about it rather than woe is me or something like that. Instinctively, Mary took her problems to Jesus. We would do very good to do the same thing. Number two, even when she did not understand what he was going to do, if anything, she told the servers to do whatever Jesus said. She trusted Jesus even when she didn't understand he had just responded, woman, why are you bringing this to me? You don't understand. It's not my time yet. You know, the things he had said to her. What does she do next? Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. We don't always understand what's happening in our lives. We don't always understand why things happen to us. We don't always understand the challenges we may have. Trust in Jesus anyway because he problem is going to work itself out, even if it's ultimately worked out in the hereafter when Jesus takes you home to live with him. If only we could be more like Mary in those situations. Other thoughts. Jesus' first miracle, the first miracle he ever did, recorded here in John chapter 2, was to save a Galilean family from social embarrassment. I really can't stress that enough. The whole idea of running out of food and drink at a wedding, it's hard to imagine a more upsetting thing, a more face-losing thing, a, a bigger problem to have as they start out their married life together. I'm actually glad as well that Jesus' first miracle was done at a wedding. It's a party. It's a party. Should be anyway. You know, it's not good to have people crying all over the place in a way. You know, you have to handle that before you get married. If you're going to be crying, then don't marry the boy, whatever it may be. But his first miracle is to save somebody from social embarrassment 
start a new life off on the right foot. And it's done at a party. Jesus did not walk around this life. He did not walk around on the face of the earth with some kind of a somber frown on his face. He didn't have a, a, a rope that he was beating his back with to make sure he always felt pain. He didn't do anything with some kind of doom and gloom. He went to a party and he had fun. I'm so afraid that many Christians we may meet, many Christians I've known in the past, would never be caught dead having a good time. It's okay to be joyful. It's okay, as the Bible says, to rejoice with those who rejoice. There's always time to weep with those who are weeping. Christianity is not simply telling us, Jesus doesn't tell us simply weep with those who weep, period. Take the time to enjoy life. Take the time to rejoice with brothers and sisters, with families. Take the time to have fun. Jesus did. Jesus did. He enjoyed life and times with his friends. It's okay to be happy. We, Christians, members of God's family, of all people, should be happy. There shouldn't be much of anything that can ever get us there. Last slide. Too often I believe that uh, people seem to think that the spiritually mature are going to be the type that uh, you know, never crack a smile or something. Far from it. Far, far from it. There's a difference between being sober-minded, being serious, which we are commanded to be, and being sour-faced, which we are not supposed to be. So challenge this week, I gave you one earlier, go to Jesus with our problems. The big challenge I want to put on you this week, enjoy life God has given to you. Find some occasion to be joyful with family or friends. Give thanks to God for all of his blessings. Do not step beyond what God wants you to do. After all, first century, they frowned upon, you know, doing things God didn't want you to do. Drunkenness was not excused. But you don't have to be excessive to have fun. So enjoy life. Look for some way to be happy. Look for some way to share joy with people. Be sure to give thanks to God for all blessings. The biggest blessing of all is the opportunity you have right now to become a member of God's family. In our, in our gathering today, I think probably nearly everybody is, is a member of God's family, but we always want to say, if you're not yet a member of God's family, you need to be. Jesus' first miracle may have been to uh, bring joy to a wedding, but he came and lived his life perfectly so that he could be the sacrifice to pay the price for all the wrong things I have done. To give his life so that he would be the one to die. Be raised from the dead so that I can go home to live with God. If you're not a member of God's family in just a moment, would want you to be. You need to understand what Jesus did for you. You need to change your life. Quit living to excess. Still be happy, but to start living for God and to be buried in water in baptism so that your sins can be washed away. That's what the New Testament tells us. If you're a member of God's family, but you've been sour-faced, 
If you're a member of God's family and you haven't been taking your problems to Jesus, if you're a member of God's family and you just need help to get through your problems, you can also come when we stand and sing here in a moment, and we will pray with you. We will take your problems to God, and we will ask God to brighten your life and all of our lives. That's the call that God has for you right now as we stand and sing.